All right, if you want to go ahead and uh, find your seat, make your way back to your seat. Well, good morning, and uh, again, welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you on this Sunday, uh, celebrating the good news of the gospel and the hope we have in Jesus. Before we get into our sermon text and our sermon this morning, I just want to take a moment to, to pray a pastoral prayer, uh, just an opportunity for us to gather together corporately as a church and lift up uh, prayer and praise to our God. You know, there's a lot going on in our world, a lot going on in our church, uh, some of which is marked on this particular weekend. So I'd like to take a minute just to come before God on behalf of our church in prayer. So would you pray with me? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God, we thank you that no matter what is going on in our life, what is going on in our church, our world, whatever it happens to be, we thank you that you are in control. And for that, you alone are the one who deserves all glory. You are a God who is high and lifted up, but one who also d dwells with the contrite and lowly in spirit, who's near the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. So today, God, I want to pray for several things going on that are important to us in this community. First, Father, I want to pray for our 515 Reboot Camp that's coming up next weekend. We have some 40 students and parents that are going to be encouraged. We pray going to that camp to be encouraged, and we pray that would be the case, that they would be encouraged as they begin this year. God, would you help them to just be reinvigorated, to follow hard after King Jesus? God, I pray that you will be a, do a reviving and restoring work in their lives. I pray that you will encourage them and challenge them to be who you've called them to be. Give them all ears to hear and eyes to see. And God, we also pray that you would protect them spiritually and physically. Today, as we noted, is also Sanctity of Life Sunday. God, we thank you that you are a God of life. We thank you that your word makes it crystal clear that you value all of life from the womb to the tomb. So today we pray for our country. We pray for our world. We pray that you would help our world to value all people, born and unborn, men and women for all of life. God, we pray that you would bring an end to abortion. God, we thank you for the ministries that are seeking to come alongside men and women that are in the midst of crisis. We pray that you would bless them as they seek to show them that life is valuable. Help us as a church to come alongside these moms and dads and help in very real ways. And God, we also want to pray for the men and women who've had abortions, who've been par party to them. Would you comfort them? God, I pray that you'd call them to yourself. I pray that you'd help us to extend grace and love and mercy to them and show them a Savior who bled and died for all their sin and shame. May they experience your healing grace. God, we pray that you bring restoration in places of death, bring light in places of darkness. And additionally, God, we pray for our nation to value all people for all of life, regardless of the color of their skin or the place of their birth. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we're thankful for the influence of Dr. King, and we pray that we as followers of Jesus would be faithful to fight for unity and equity and peace and justice for all people. 
God, we pray and ask that you would crush racism in this country and lead people to repentance. We pray for those in positions of power and influence to use their place to bring about change that honors and glorifies you. And God, we also pray that you'd use our church to spread the word of our king and the influence of his kingdom for the good of others. God, guide us, give us wisdom in the midst of a tumultuous time. And God, we long to see the gospel go forward. We long to see revival come about. And we thank you that we're not in this alone. We thank you for other faithful churches in our area that are preaching and proclaiming Christ. And today we wanna pray for Redeemer Church of Arlington. God, we thank you for our brothers and sisters just down the road who this morning are gathering right now, lifting high the name of Jesus. Would you bless them and encourage them? Would you help them to be unified around the gospel? Help their leaders to be encouraged? Would you call more people to yourself through the ministry of that church? And God, I also wanna pray for those of our body of believers here who are homebound this morning. God, we miss seeing all of our brothers and sisters here. I pray for those who are at home because of COVID, whether they're sick right now, because they're immunocompromised, I pray that you would comfort them, that you would help them, that you bring healing. And God, I pray that they would experience your power and presence. Help us, oh God, as a church to remember them and pursue them and forgive us where we have not done this. And we pray for a day soon when we'll all be together again. God, as we prepare now to open your word, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that your name will be exalted. Help us to be in awe of you this morning. Help us by your spirit to listen and receive what you have for us today. Change us because we've gathered here today under the preaching of your word. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus, our redeemer. Amen. Now Stacy's going to read our sermon text this morning out of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you guys ever had deja vu? Like that feeling that something you're doing or some experience you are having, you've had before, you've experienced before, you've already done this or had this conversation or interaction with a person. It's kind of a weird thing, almost an out-of-body-like experience. The French phrase literally means already seen. Like a movie that you've already watched multiple times, you know what happens next. Now, some people say this is a paranormal thing or a prophetic precognition, but most experts disagree. They don't know exactly why it happens, but it has something to do with how our brains and memory work. You know, as I was reading our text for today from 1 John 4 and see John's call to love one another, it kind of felt like deja vu. Like, haven't we already seen this or heard this before? And the reality is yes. Yes, we have. I preached on this back in November from chapter three. Vince preached on love out of 1 Corinthians 13 right before Advent. And here we are again with John calling us to love one another. 
talking about our love amongst brothers and sisters in Christ in the context of the church. It's the third time that he's mentioned it in this short letter, and it won't be the last. So isn't this going to be a little redundant this morning? You've already been here, already done that? I mean, why does John spend so much time coming back over and over again to themes and topics that he's already covered? But then I thought, that's exactly the point. He's intentionally coming back to this again and again, not because he doesn't know how to write a letter, but because we need to be reminded of it again and again. Yes, you've heard a sermon a few times recently on loving one another, but let me ask, what difference has that made in your life? As you think about your life over the last few months and weeks, have you walked in perfect obedience in this area? Or have you struggled to love others? I know for me, it's been the latter. See, redundancy and repetition are helpful for all of us in things that we're prone to forget, things that we're gonna struggle with, that we need to work on in our lives. It's why we practice sports or practice an instrument. It's why as parents, if you have kids, we sometimes feel like we're telling our kids the same things over and over and over again. We want it to sink in, to become a part of who we are, second nature, where it's just muscle memory for our life or our activity. See, what John's talking about here in our text today isn't just for the sake of knowledge. There's a lot of theology in this text, but it's not just for the sake of theological musings. The Apostle John is writing a letter, and he's writing a letter to a group of struggling Christians, people who are finding it difficult to follow Christ in a world that's set against him. They're being pulled away to false belief and false ideas about God. So when John talks about love again, he doesn't mean for it to be a theoretical. It matters for real life. And in particular, our life together as followers of Jesus in a broken world. It's one of the defining characteristics of being a true Christian. See, John really cares about this and he really cares for, about them and us actually getting this and understanding it. And so he comes back to it again. But this time he comes at it at a little bit of a different angle. What he wants us to understand this morning is the nature of God's love for us and how that impacts our life together. So yes, I did preach on this back in November, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to do so again because if we're honest, we all still have lots of room to grow when it comes to loving one another. So let's dive into 1 John 4 this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. As John comes back to this topic again in this letter, he begins by showing us the amazing source of love. The amazing source of love. We see this in verses 7 through 8. Let me read them for us again. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Several years ago, Amy and I had the opportunity to travel to the Great Lakes region of Africa. We went to Ethiopia and Rwanda and Uganda. It's called the Great Lakes region because there's some pretty massive bodies of water there. Two of the three largest freshwater bodies are in that part of the world. Lake Victoria is in the southeast corner of Uganda. It crosses into Kenya and Tanzania. And there's a little town there called Jinja, Uganda. And it sits on the bank of this massive lake. And it's also the beginning of the White Nile River, which when it hooks up with the Blue Nile River flows north 4,000 miles away to Egypt and ultimately into the Mediterranean Sea. My wife and I had the opportunity to raft the White Nile River. That's a whole nother story. I'll tell you about it later. But I wonder if people in Egypt or even in the Mediterranean ever think about where that water came from. 
the source of that water and how far it's traveled. It makes me think, I wonder if we take time to think about the source and origin of love. I mean, our culture loves love. It loves to talk about love, which is a good thing. We can be thankful for that. We may not always be loving towards others, and there's certainly lots of problems and struggles in our country, but I think generally most people would be in favor of a culture that appreciates love over hate. The problem is, what do we mean when we say love? When we hear phrases like love is love, but who gets to decide what that means or if that's even right? I mean, is love abstract? Is it subjective? Or is there a point of origin? So we really have to understand the source of love so we know what it actually is and isn't. And our text today does just that. It shows us the headwaters of love. See, love is not a construct of culture. It's not defined by poets and philosophers. Love is from God. He's the author. He's the originator. Love is from God because John tells us God is love. Now that sounds great, but what does John mean by that? Well, there's a few other places in scripture where God is described as something. We see that God is light and God is spirit and God is love. These are all descriptions, not so much of God's being, but God's character. This isn't meant to be abstract. It's about origin and action. This is who God is at his core. But see, love isn't the only attribute of God and it's not the superior attribute of God. Love also is not just one of many activities that God does. John is telling us and saying to us all of who God is and what God does is loving. Now listen, that can be hard sometimes to wrap our minds around and understand, especially when there's difficult things going on in our life and in our world. The reality is we don't always know what God is up to or why he's allowing things to happen in the way he's allowing them. But we do know that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When we're engaging the difficulties of life and not sure, we can trust in the character of our God. What exactly is the nature of this love that is from God? Well, God is and always has been loving. Even apart from creation, the Trinity existed in perfect community and exhibited perfect love, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the love of God didn't remain there. A common word used in the Old Testament that God uses to describe himself and others use to describe God is that God is full of and abounding in chesed. It's translated a lot of different ways in our English Bibles, but one of the most common is steadfast love. In fact, one of the most important scenes that we see in the Bible is when Moses has an encounter with God. In Exodus chapter 34, God reveals himself to us, and this is how our God describes himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Psalms are replete with mentions of the steadfast love of God. And in Psalm 136, the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever is repeated 26 times. Chesed is mentioned about 250 times in the Old Testament. And almost always it's being attributed to God. He is the source of chesed. He is full of it. This is who our God is, a God full of steadfast love. And his love isn't fickle. 
It isn't faint-hearted. It isn't erratic. It isn't inconsistent. This is a love that endures and it perseveres. It pursues. It doesn't give up. And it's a love that's the same yesterday, today, and forever because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you want to know what real love is, John is inviting us to think. He's inviting us to look to its headwaters, to its source. He's inviting you to look to God and what God has done. See, the love of God is never sentimental love. It's never a feeling of goodwill. God's love is always about practical action on behalf of another. So to help us understand this, John shows us the astonishing power of love. Look at verses 9 and 10. John writes, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is made manifest. It means it's put on display. It was put on display when God sent his only son into the world. God's love is a love that moves towards others. You and I were lost and alone, but God didn't remain distant. He came to us. But the father didn't just send the son into the world. He sent his son into the world. What does John say? So that we might live through him. See, we were all dead in our sin, in our rebellion against God. We had all sought to go our own way, but God's love is a love that gives life in places of death. In order for him to give life to dead men and women like you and me, it required recompense for our rebellion, payment for our sin. In this is love. The Father sent the Son, and the Son willingly came to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's that big word that we looked at back in chapter 2, propitiation, not something that we commonly talk about or use. And it has to do with God's wrath, also something we really don't like to talk about very often. But we have to understand that God's wrath is his righteous reaction to our rebellion. All of us deserve it because we've rebelled against him. Propitiation then means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. See, in ancient times, the idea of propitiation was a common idea. This thought that a local deity needed to be appeased and cajoled into showing favor because he was reluctant or he was fickle. And many religions and many beliefs still function with this idea Like maybe if I can just convince my God to like me, maybe if I can just convince him to help me, maybe he will. But that's not the good news of the gospel. Now see, our God isn't a reluctant God. He's a rescuing God. He doesn't long to condemn. He longs to redeem. He doesn't hold grudges. He gives grace and he rescues and he redeems and he gives grace upon grace for all of your sin and all of your shame in and through Jesus. Why? Because he is love. Listen, if you've never experienced the love of God in and through Christ, I want to invite you to that. God invites you to that. Maybe you've been looking for love all over the place in this world, looking for this kind of love. It's not going to be found anywhere else but in the truth of the gospel and a God who's welcoming you to himself through Christ. So if you don't yet know him, turn to him in faith. Believe today. But I wonder if for some of us or all of us sometimes, We can see this, we can hear it, even be thankful for the love of God, but not 
truly be moved by it. Maybe because we've forgotten who we were or who we still are as it relates to God. Do you notice what John says? He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And we weren't looking for God. We weren't having to chase him down, trying to convince him to love us or accept us. We were running the other way. He came for us. He sought us. He pursued us. He loved us. And it wasn't because we were very lovable. This wasn't like a, a picking teams for kickball in elementary school, right? Where you've got a group of kids and they're all lined up and you've got two captains. And you're like, man, who's going to get me some runs? Who's going to kick the ball out of the infield? Who's going to help me get further ahead? I'm going to pick those people first. Nobody liked to be last to get picked in kickball. God doesn't operate that way. He isn't looking for people who have all the skills, who have it all together, whose lives are put together and perfect in every way, who can offer him something. John Stott, a pastor and scholar, said this. In the ancient world, outside Christianity, it was thought appropriate to love only those who were regarded as worthy of being loved. The ancient world, man, doesn't our world still function this way? Maybe sometimes still in the church as well. Stott goes on to say, but God loves sinners who are unworthy of his love. And indeed, subject to his wrath, he loved us and sent his son to rescue us, not because we are lovable, but because he is love. And do you ever wrestle with the idea that God might not love you because of your sin? That maybe God got a bad deal with you and now he's going to figure it out and he's going to reject you and he's going to cast you off. Do you ever have those thoughts? We see in this text the exact opposite. See, God doesn't love you in spite of your sin. God loves you in the midst of it. How do you know that? How do you know that his love remains, that it is steadfast? Because in love, he sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. God's love isn't conditional. It isn't based on your behavior. You can't do anything to earn it. God's love is astonishingly powerful because he gives it freely and lavishly to rescue and redeem men and women from sin and from death. No other kind of love can do that. Now he calls you out of darkness into his light. He calls you out of death into life because he is love. Our culture says all kinds of things about love. But real love involves sacrifice for the benefit of another. In the case of God, with those who despise him. See, the greatness of God's love is seen both in the cost that he sent his only son, but also the object of his love. You and I, who are totally undeserving. See, God's love then isn't so much about his essence, but his action that flows from his perfect character and nature Our world may say a lot about love, but there can be no understanding, no explanation, no definition of true love that does not start with the astonishing power of God's love seen in and through the sending of his son. But here's what we have to see. John says all of this not for the sake of good theology, though it can help with that. He says it not even just for our own personal benefit of our own salvation, though it certainly does that. He says this because it impacts how we live with one another. It has practical implications for real life in the real world. 
See, if you've truly beheld the cross, if you've received this gift of grace that flows from it in love towards you, there's no way, no way that you can walk away unchanged. Back to a life of selfish self-interest. And so John reiterates something he's told us already, the radical call to love. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see the emphasis here? If God so loved us, us who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, us who were disobedient and delinquent, us who were hostile in mind, us who were enemies of God. I wonder if this isn't the key to obedience here, to sit and soak in the reality that God did and does love us, of all people. If God so loved us, we also then in the same way ought to love one another. When we think about how God loves us, we see how radical this call is to love one another. See, the reality of verse 11 isn't about moral philosophy and good living. It's about a transformed life. That's why he says what he does back in verse seven and eight. Let's look at back there just for a few moments. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This radical call to love matters not only at a communal level for our church, but it matters at a personal level and an eternal level. It's not something just for everyone out there, but it's for you. It's another aspect of the social test that John is laying out for us to show us that you are genuinely in Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you will love perfectly if you're a Christian, but that this kind of love is a consistent pursuit in your life. All of us are born into this world self-focused people, people who do not have the capacity or the desire to love God or others above ourselves. But if you evidence that kind of love in your life, this God-like kind of love that's present in your life towards others, it isn't because you figured it out. It isn't because you read a book on it or got a few tips on how to do it. It's because God has invaded your life and shown you his love. Your ability to love flows from becoming a new creation, from giving a new heart and a new nature. It proves the reality of your new life in Christ. Now, you maybe think, well, hold on a second. If that's the case, how come I know some people who wouldn't call themselves Christians that are loving? In fact, if we're honest, sometimes people who aren't Christians love better than those who profess Christ. We have to understand that the ethic of the kingdom is present in the world, even if the world rejects its king. So John isn't saying it's impossible to love at all apart from knowing and following Jesus. He's saying to love apart from Christ, being king will always fall short because it won't be influenced by the divine pattern and the divine source. There's irony here. See, the irony of a world that loves love, but not the one who is the source of love, is that people who don't follow Jesus and are yet loving are actually inconsistent with their worldview. You can be okay with that. <laughs> they have a worldview that say, it's just me, it's all about me, I can do whatever I need to do to get mine and get ahead. But love requires sacrifice. 
So someone who isn't following Christ but yet is loving, we can point out, hey, you're kind of inconsistent with what you say you believe. But that's just as true for Christians who don't love. They're also consistent with their worldview. See, the opposite is also true. John says, if you do not love, you do not know God. In other words, if your life is not marked by consistent, genuine, God-like love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, then perhaps you aren't actually a Christian. Those are strong words. Strong words that we should be taken seriously. There's no way to water them down, no way to put a nice bow on them. What John says is what John means, and therefore what the Spirit means to communicate to us. His point is, is that a loveless Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. To be loveless and say you know God is a contradiction. They cannot coexist. Love for one another is not an optional attribute for a genuine follower of Jesus. So what are we supposed to do with that? What what does this radical call to love look like when it's lived out in our lives? As I was thinking about all that's going on in our world, all that's going on in our country, it made me think about the opportunity that we have. The opportunity we have in our church to affect change or at least be an influence. See, the world, for the most part, understands loving people who are like you. Man, all bets are off outside of that. You sit on the other side of the aisle, no love. You look like that, you're from this place, you believe these things, no love. The sad thing is, I see a lot of the same thing in the church today. Discord and division, disunity. It's very disheartening to me, but more than me, it grieves the heart of our God. Why is that the case? Why why do we struggle to love one another in the way that God loves? Why do we struggle to lay down our lives for the sake of one another? There's a lot of different reasons, but I think one of them is that there's a kind of syncretism going on where we think it's okay to take different sets of beliefs and try to slam them together to merge them into something new. For instance, the idea that holding on to individual rights and freedoms and preferences is somehow compatible with the life and call of Jesus, where he says to lay down our lives for the sake of others, to consider others' needs as more important than our own. Like our cars have indicator lights to warn us that something is off. The indicator light for this is certainly in our actions towards one another, but also in our words. When we find ourselves justifying our actions or our inaction more with the wisdom from the world, what we read on blogs or hear on news sites or stories, instead of the wisdom from God, it comes from his word, or we use God's word and twist it in a way to validate what we're doing or what we're not doing. It should be an indicator light, a warning light to us that we're straying away from love. Listen, the challenge for us in this radical call from John and ultimately from Jesus is not to love people who are just like you, who agree with you on all things. It's to love those that don't. That's the kind of love that is from God. And so I want to move from the theoretical and the theological to the practical. I want to challenge all of us to take this call seriously and specifically, personally and purposefully for the sake of our community, but also for the sake of our own souls. 
I wanna challenge you to think about doing something over the next few weeks. I wanna challenge you to move towards someone in love who maybe right now you don't like or get along with. Maybe someone you don't agree with about something going on in our world, something going on in our lives, and there's plenty to choose from. I wanna challenge you to sit down, to listen and to learn, to believe the best, to seek to love them, not in spite of those things, but in the midst of them. I say that to you, but this is a challenge for me as well because there are people in my life who I struggle to love in this way. Listen, God moved toward and loved his enemies. God has set the threshold of love very high because the reality is people aren't the enemy. We don't battle against flesh and blood. But the spirit and the demonic forces outside People aren't the enemy, certainly not in the church, men and women for whom Christ died. God's love set the standard for the love Christians are called to embody to one another. So let me ask, how are we doing with that? How are you doing with that? And if it isn't enough to know that God is calling us to love like he does, John gives us the reason to take up this radical call to love in verse 12. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God, but God has made himself known. First and foremost in the person and work of Jesus, his son, our savior. But here John is telling us that God reveals himself now in and through his people when we love one another. Our love gives evidence of God indwelling us, taking up residence in our heart and life by way of the spirit. I mean, this is significant. We can't just brush over this. The unseen God is seen when we love in this way. So what do people experience and see when they interact with you? Are you marked by being a cantankerous grumbler or compassionate and kind? Are you marked by a critical spirit or encouragement? Do you think more about you and your rights or others and their well-being? Listen, the mark of maturity is not mystical experience. It isn't theological knowledge. It's love. Love like God's love. It's getting outside of yourself and seeking and serving others. It isn't all there is to life in community, but it marks all of life in community. God's love abides in us and it's being perfected, perfected when it's worked out and reproduced in us, among us, as we live life together. It's amazing. But it isn't just for our health of our own church, our own community. See, when we love one another like God loves us, it not only proves the genuineness of a transformed and transforming life, it also sends a message to the world. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And in a polarizing world that abounds in vitriol and venom toward anyone and everyone who thinks differently than you, we have an opportunity to live differently. To show that the gospel of grace really does transform everything. We are called to go and make disciples among our neighbors and the nations. We're called to go out of these doors week in and week out and engage people around us who don't know the love of our God or the hope of our Savior. People who might be very, very different than you. 
But if we can't love one another, when we disagree about something, how in the world are we going to love people who don't follow our king and his kingdom? Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to repent where needed. We have an opportunity to realign ourselves to the ways of our king. So let's take up this radical call to love. Let's take it up and live it out. If God so loved us, us, we also ought to love one another. Yes, John is repetitive and John is redundant in calling us to this once again, but we need to hear it again and again because this is how we live life together. This is how we become a community that is only explainable because of the gospel. And to that we say, God make it so, amen. You know, one of the ways that we are regularly reminded of God's love for us is by taking communion with one another.